We all know what campaigning for office looks like, but there's another kind of campaigning that happens in the church, and it can destroy the work God is doing in His church. Today, you'll find out how to make sure you're not contributing to that destruction. Welcome to the Food for Your Soul podcast, where we apply the Word of God to the hearts of men and women to stoke the fires of your delight in Christ. Here's your host, Dr. D. Richard Ferguson. The motivation in verse 1 is God's love for them. The motivation in verse 2 is their love for Paul. This part here is God's love for them. Then he says, then make my joy complete. Make my joy complete. Verse 1 is, do it to make God happy. Verse 2 is, do it to make me happy. Make my joy complete. He's already joyful. He said that all through chapter 1. He made the point that he's joyful. Uh, so he can't say, make me joyful. He has to say, fill up my joy to the brim. Finish off my joy. Take it to the top by being humble and unified. My first thought when I read that, you know, when I was studying the beginning of verse 2, was about what a beautiful relationship this is between Paul and the Philippians. We see, we see this all, all through the book. We're going to keep seeing it. They, they truly loved each other, this church and this leader. And I think every pastor dreams of having this kind of relationship with his people where he could, just, he could actually motivate them to do something really, really hard that they don't want to do just by saying, you know, it would make me happy if you did it. That's a special relationship. How does a pastor get a relationship like that with, with his people? Uh, Paul, no doubt, got it to that point because he had sacrificed so much for them, laid down his life for them. Uh, he had loved them so profoundly. And it's my life's goal to earn that kind of relationship with all of you. But on the other hand, I will say this. Even in a situation where the elders uh, of a church haven't earned your respect or your love, the Bible teaches that it's actually in your your own self-interest to make them happy by being responsive to God's Word. That's Hebrews 13, 17, which says, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. That's kind of like that, you know, pastor ain't happy, ain't nobody happy kind of thing. We're all a lot better off when our spiritual leaders are full of joy. That's what they they need to be. I I remember once I was at a a previous church and I made a joke about the lighting. I don't like poorly lit spaces, and so I made a joke, a terribly lit church, and I said something about getting depressed every time I walked in there, and the janitor was standing there. He says, well, ain't nothing more depressing than a depressed pastor. You know, and so he's going he's gonna to work on the life. And, and I don't know if he was thinking about Hebrews 13, 17, but that's, it's a very similar idea. If the pastors of this church have sorrow rather than joy, that's not to your advantage. Uh, and the best way to make sure that we have joy is not to pat us on the back or you know, give us a card on pastor appreciation or anything like that. The way, the, 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 the way to put the deepest joy in the hearts of the leaders of this church is by being humble and loving one another in unity. So that's the motive. So, so, so we're motivated by Christ's love for us and by our love for our spiritual leaders. Uh, we're all motivated now. Now that we've got all this motivation, now we're ready to fulfill this mandate. So, so, so what is the mandate? 
The mandate is in verse 2, the rest of verse 2. So, so we have the compassion here, I mean the, the, the motivation here, and he says, then make my joy complete. There's the rest of the motivation. And here's the mandate. By being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Okay? That's the mandate. That's what he's telling us to do. Basically what he's doing, he's, there's three different ways of saying the same thing. He's calling us to, un, to unity, and he does it with three different phrases. I told you before that Philippi was probably Paul's favorite church. It was an amazing church. Uh, they were a wonderful bunch. I, I, they didn't seem to have any doctrinal problems. He doesn't address any heresies. Uh, they didn't have the kinds of problems with immorality or unrepentant sin or resistance to Paul's authority like you see in Corinth or other churches. Um, it's, a, it's a spiritually mature, generous, loving, godly church that Paul brags about to other churches. But they did have a unity problem. And you can see that all through the book. Now... Does that strike you as a little strange? I mean, surprising? How could such a spiritually mature church have fighting and disunity? How could that happen? Actually, it's not all that surprising. It's not surprising because, because disunity tends to be a problem in churches that are spiritually mature. You know, different churches have different kinds of problems. There are life problems and death problems in churches. Dying churches have one set of problems. Dying churches, you know, they, they can't pay the bills. There's no fruit, spiritual fruit because nobody's energized for ministry and the whole thing's dying. Those are the kinds of problems you have in a, in a dying church. There are other problems that come along with having a lively, thriving, growing, spiritually mature church. Um, if the church is doing well, I mean, it's a lot of times there won't be enough space in the facility, we can't handle the people, or people are falling through the cracks, there's so much going on that people get overlooked, and, and there's just a lot of problems that go along with a, with a thriving church. Disunity is one of those thriving church problems. It's one of those life problems. The, the healthier a church is, the more, here's, here's why it is, the healthier the church is, the more enthusiastic the people tend to be about ministry and doctrine. People really care about stuff. And so when a conflict arises, it really matters to them. See, in a liberal church where they don't really even believe the doctrine, it's just sort of a religious you know, thing they're going through, then if you disagree on doctrine, it's no big deal. Who cares? I mean, you've got your superstition. i got my superstition. I don't care about yours. What do I care if it's different? That's what you have in a dead liberal church. But in a living church where people are doing, you know, if I'm doing what I'm doing because I believe God Almighty called me to do this work and so I will literally die for this calling and you feel just as strongly about your calling, what happens when you do something that gets in my way or I do something that gets in your way and hinders what you're doing? That's a big deal. Right? It matters to us because we're alive. So the, so, the, so the more life you have in a church, the more you're going to tend to find that church struggling with unity. So it's not a surprise that the church in Philippi would, would struggle with unity. And this is why it's important, so important for every church at every level of maturity to remain vigilant all the time. No matter how healthy or mature a church is, we've got to stay alert because, because spiritual health in a church is attained slowly and lost quickly. Easily lost. And what we gain with all of our good doctrine and all of our passionate ministry 
can be lost through disunity. So, let's look at these these three ways that he describes unity in in verse 2. He says, um, uh, make my joy complete by being like-minded, there's one, having the same love, there's another one, and then being one in spirit and purpose, there's another one. Like-minded, same love, one in spirit and purpose. Take those one at a time. First, like-minded. That word has to do with attitude. It means having the same attitude uh, and, and same orientation of life uh, with one another. You can be unified with somebody who actually has some different opinions about doctrine or various issues as long as you both have the same attitudes and orientations of life. Some of my closest friends and family are people who hold theological views that are significantly different than the views I hold, but I don't feel even slightly estranged from them because we share the same attitudes about things. The list of things that we value highly is pretty much the same. The list of things we think of as being small in importance is pretty much the same. And so we get along. The second phrase is uh, having the same love. In order to have unity, we have to love the same things. And so we have to be on the same team. We have to be, have that kind of camaraderie. If you have a, you think about a team, like you got a, you got, you got two football fans who have very different opinions about uh, how the game should be played and about the, the, the strategies and about the various players. They just got all these different opinions. Those two fans will actually get along just fine if, usually, if they're rooting for the same team, right? If they love the same team. But if they're rooting for opposing teams, they can have all kinds of agreement about uh, strategies and players and all that and, be, and hate each other, right? If you and I both love the Word of God and we both highly value things like humility and faith and love and perseverance and compassion and we both love the church and we both live for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ if we agree on that stuff we love all the same stuff like that then uh, we both delight in seeing a worshiping heart you know that makes us happy if we have all that in common we can disagree actually on quite a bit and still be one in heart can't we same attitudes uh, same orientation, same loves, and then thirdly, being one in spirit and purpose. That means having the same desires and objectives. Go in the same direction. We have uh, the same attitudes, we love the same things, and as a result, we ha- tend to have the same priorities in what we're going after. We're, lo- we're working towards the same goals. We're using the same methods to reach those goals. Not only do we love the same things, but those things that are important to us are more important to us than our own personal comforts and preferences. And we share that in common. So if you do something to slight me, or I do something that irritates or insults you, our relationship will handle it just fine if we both care more about the progress of the gospel than we do about our own pride. So all of that is exceedingly pleasing to God. God loves that. He loves unity. Uh, Psalm 133, 1, how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. God loves that. He loves it. And it's why it's such a big deal to God when we do anything that creates disunity. God has such strong words to say about people who create division in his church. 
Titus 3.9, but avoid foolish debates, genealogies and quarrels, and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a divisive person after a first and second warning, knowing that such a person is perverted and sins being self-condemned. Very strong words. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul writes a whole chapter rebuking the people for dividing up into factions and lacking unity. In verse 3, he says, Since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? Now, that's an interesting thing about Corinth, because a lot of times people think the problem in Corinth was just, uh, you know, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. People were, were lining up under different leaders, and they think that was the main problem. That wasn't the main problem. It's fine for you to like... You know, one of you to like John MacArthur, another one to like John Viper, and so on. That's, that's not going to that's not going to destroy our unity. What destroys our unity is that combined with the rest of this jealousy and quarrelling and worldliness. Verse sixteen. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. It's a very very serious matter because when 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 there are divisions in the church. Our corporate worship, when we come together and praise God, actually does more harm than good. That's 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. Your meetings are doing more harm than good. When you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. So, so what should we do when we disagree? Just, sweep, just, just keep our mouths shut, sweep it under the rug, and pretend it's not there? No, no. Uh, verse 19 says, 1 Corinthians 11:19. no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. It, it matters who's right and who's wrong. We've got to figure that out. We don't want to be peace fakers and just sweep our differences under the rug. If you, you and I see things differently, we need to work that out. We need to talk that through. But working it out won't work. Trying to work it out, our differences, won't work if... Uh, it won't bring about any unity, unity unless we love the same things and care about the same things and have the same attitudes and same orientation. So how do we get there? How could we get so... I mean, what a diverse bunch. Look around. What a diverse bunch. All these people around you, you never even met these people before you came here, most of them. And, and they're coming from all kinds of different ethnic backgrounds and cultural backgrounds and church backgrounds and, and all kinds of different things. And how are we all going to get on the same page? When a church begins to fragment, how can, you, how can you line everyone up so that we're all have one heartbeat? Which is kind of what the, this, this terminology here refers to. It's the same soul, same purposes, same priority, same love, same attitude, same orientation. That just seems like it would take forever to do that. How do you do it? Do you do it by getting everybody to sign the same doctrinal statement? Or to, to sign a membership covenant that we all agree? Or by uh, coming up with a slogan and just constantly repeating our slogan and making sure everybody can recite our purpose statement from memory at any moment? Is that how you get unity? Now, those things, those things can be very helpful in clarifying our unity, but none of them will bring about unity. In order to bring about unity that's not already there, we need, we need one particular character quality, and Paul gives it to us in verse 3. So, so verse 2 is the mandate. That's unity. He says, have, have unity. Verse 3, he's going to give us the means. So he gives us the motivation, then the mandate, now the means. Here's our method. Here's how we're going to get there. Verse 3. Ready? 
Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Humility. Humility. That's the way to achieve unity. Let go of pride. And and Paul describes this humility with a lot of terms, two negative descriptions and two positive descriptions. So, do nothing out of selfish ambition. There's one. And then vain conceit. So those are the two negative ways of looking at it. And But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Those are the two positive ways. So, so let's look at each of those. First, the negative one, selfish ambition. That's when I just do things to promote, promote myself. Just to promote myself above everyone else. This is the word, actually, that was used to uh, describe people campaigning for office. So, so we know what this word means, don't we, right now? We know exactly what this word means. The people who are currently running for president, every single thing they do or say is designed for one purpose, promote themselves and gain popularity, right? That's what, the, that's what it's all about. In an election year, we see that in the extreme. But in its more subtle forms, this is something all of us do. All of us do this. We're all campaigning for ourselves to some degree. Albert Barnes had a poignant comment on this. He said, he said probably there is no command of the Bible which, we have, uh, which would have a wider sweep than this or would touch on more points of human conduct if fairly applied. Who is there who passes a single day without, in some respect, desiring to display himself? What minister of the gospel preaches who has never had any wish to exhibit his talents, eloquence, or learning? Who, in conversation, is always free from the desire to show his wit or his power in argumentation or his skill in repartee? Who plays at the piano without the desires of commendation? Who thunders in the Senate or goes to the field of battle? Who builds a house or purchases an article of, of, of apparel? Who writes, who writes a book or performs a deed of benevolence altogether uninfluenced by this desire? If all could be taken out of human conduct, which comes from pride and selfish ambition, how small a portion would be left. That's really true, isn't it? It's true. We're all out there campaigning. Not for votes for public office, but for people to like us, for people to be impressed with us, to honor us, for people to be supportive of us. We love those endorsements. Everything you do all day long, you do because of some desire, right? Everything. Every, for some kind of desire, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's good. There's nothing wrong with pursuing desire. When it becomes selfishness, it's not selfish to pursue a desire. What's selfish is when we start pursuing our desires while ignoring other people's desires and interests. That's what selfishness is. Some people might hear that last part about how all of us are constantly campaigning and, and think, no, I, I don't do that. I'm not running around bragging about myself, drawing attention to myself. I don't even like attention. Well, that may be the case, but there are a lot of ways to campaign. Some people do it in a braggadocious way, but most of us are a lot more subtle about it. It might be as subtle as sucking in your gut at a swimming pool so people think you're skinny, or fretting because you made a joke in a group and no one laughed. Or maybe you're afraid of public speaking. Do you know the number one phobia people report is fear of public speaking? Even more than snakes, spiders, and heights, any of that. 
and scientists have always been puzzled about why that is. Because when you're nervous on stage, your body acts like your life is in danger. It's not just the normal fear responses. Your body has all the responses of a near-death experience. Hyperventilating, shaking, heart racing. Scientists who have studied that can't explain it. No one likes to be embarrassed, but normal embarrassment doesn't make you act like you're dying. But if you understand human nature, it's not that big of a mystery. Every human being is driven from the core by a desire for greatness. We all seek it in different forms, but everyone craves it. And when there's a threat of being humiliated in front of a large number of people, that threatens something deep inside us that's even more essential than our survival instinct. And that's not bad. It's how God designed us. He gave us a powerful desire for greatness. The problem comes when we seek earthly greatness in this life instead of kingdom greatness in the next. Jesus offered that as an incentive more than once. He said, this is how to be great in the kingdom. He wants us to pursue that. As often as you can remember today, just ask yourself, am I doing the things Jesus said will make me great in the kingdom of God? Humility, servanthood, perseverance, good works, seeking to please God, caring about honor from God more than from man, seeking eternal rewards, and suffering for Christ. Ask yourself if you're doing those things, and if the answer is yes, let that satisfy your soul's craving for greatness. Father, I know that no one from the east or the west or from the desert can exalt a man. It is you alone who judges. You bring one down and exalt another. My soul glorifies you, Lord, and my spirit rejoices in you, my Savior. For you have been mindful of the humble state of your servant, and you have done great things for me. Holy is your name. Your mercy extends to those who fear you from generation to generation. You have performed mighty deeds with your arm. You have scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. You have brought down rulers from their thrones, but have lifted up the humble. You have filled the hungry with good things, but have sent the rich away empty. You have helped your people, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as you said to our fathers. Lord, forgive me for all my prideful campaigning. Help me seek greatness in your kingdom today, not in this world. Teach me how to contribute to the unity of, in my church. Show me how to use my influence to bring us to a place of having the same attitude, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose, and doing nothing out of campaigning. I pray that you would bless the ministries at our church, Lord. Give us success so that the word of truth may ring out from us to transform many hearts to turn to you. And pour out your grace on our pastor, Father. Give him and the elders wisdom as they lead the church and courage as they stand against the wickedness in our culture and speak out against it. And love for the sheep that they may be shepherds after your own heart. 
Thank you for listening. If you found today's episode edifying, why not share it with a friend? This season of the Food for Your Soul podcast features excerpts from our sermon series on the book of Philippians, 50 expository sermons covering every verse. You can find those and hundreds of other sermons for free download on drichardferguson.com. Until next time, rejoice in the Lord always and set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God.